you're listening to a very broad history of werewolves and other things, and I am your host, Travis Roy. This is the podcast where I talk about any and every random historical subject that interests me, and hopefully interests you. Thanks for coming along. Welcome back to Very Broad History of Werewolves and Other Things. I'm Travis Roy. It's good to be back. It's good to have you back. I appreciate all of your listening and support, and that includes the listeners of Fairfield, Connecticut. I see you, and I appreciate you. Thank you. Um, Today we're going to be talking about the great Michigander, Bob Seger. Now, one of my first nightmares to jump in subjects... (laughs) from one to another kind of abruptly. One of my first nightmares that I can remember, uh, you know, I was so young, I was so young that I didn't really know, I couldn't really differentiate between, you know, reality and nightmares. So I had this dream where this car pulled up. It was like a green Chrysler. It was kind of car that had like the white hard top and it was in my driveway and I, but I couldn't see any people and I went to, to the door wall, which is what we call a sliding glass door if you're from Michigan. I went to the door wall on the deck and looked through it and there was two men there. And both of these men were like made of stone. They were stone men, but they, but they, and they were perfectly still, but they were looking through the glass directly at me. I woke up terrified. Flash forward to a few years later and my father had the cassette like a rock and I remember being in the basement and not even like knowing the song, just seeing the album cover like a rock and being terrified of it and terrified of Bob Seger. Uh, but luckily I got over my fear of Bob Seger, although it, it did take uh, some time, less for the fear, but more for what I came to view as uh, a cheesy quality to him, which I'm, I'm ashamed to admit that I felt this now, but I and a lot of people who were kids in the 80s and then adults in the 2000s spent much of like the 90s and 2000s kind of looking down on 80s music in particular anything that you know that smacked of sincerity Uh, I think that something about my generation was uncomfortable with the raw sincerity of the music of people like Bob Seger and Bruce Springsteen and Journey and and Phil Collins, all this stuff that's super famous and popular again. I mean, for some people, it never went away. I know that. Um, But for my generation, I think that for a while, there was a dip in how a lot of this stuff was perceived. And it took us some time to get comfortable and grow up enough to appreciate the great music that these people were producing. Um, So I want to talk today about Bob. So Bob Seeger was born Robert Clark Seeger, May 6, 1945, in Ann Arbor, Michigan. So that's three days, 35 years, and just a couple towns over from me. His father was a big band leader in Ann Arbor throughout the 1940s, but eventually had to settle for working as a Ford factory worker. And he taught Bob how to play the ukulele, and then he left the family when Bob was 10 years old leaving Bob's mother and his older brother to do the work to uh, to bring money into the household. But Bob knew even then that he wanted to be a musician, perhaps just like his father. And he, uh, and he just kept on working at it from that point on. 
He always knew that he wanted to be a musician since he, the time he was a little kid, and so did like all of his friends and family, but he didn't think that it would be something that could last for him. From his thinking, he's, he thought, he thought he'd be big by the time he was 25, but by the time he was 30, he'd be over and done with because he didn't think anybody lasts in the music industry for more than five years or so. Turns out he was pretty wrong about that. His first band, by the time he's 15, is a band called The Decibels, and he plays, and there's no bass player, <laughs> I don't think, um, but he plays the high school prom. When he's a sophomore, he plays, he plays his high school's prom. He's like the band for that. And that's at uh, Pioneer High School, where he graduated in 1963. Other bands besides the Decibels was one called uh, the, Tr the Town Criers, and he kind of started to accrue a following with that band. Then he, he joined a band called The Omens, and the, he re it was headed by a local band headed by a guy named Doug Brown. He recorded his first single there with them with a song called TGIF, but he just kind of kept on working at it. Uh, he left The Omens, started his own thing again, uh, and, and, and this time he starts, he, he tries as uh, uh, Bob Seeger in The Last Herd is uh, the name that he goes by when he's 20 years old and he cuts his first couple singles, East Side Story and another song called Persecution Smith. And it's around here that he met uh, his longtime manager, I mean for decades long manager, a guy named Edward Punch Andrews, which that name, Punch Andrews, like what a, what a fucking rock and roll name. So Punch Andrews owned a handful of local teen clubs, which is what they used to call all-ages venues, and they called his clubs The Hideouts, and eventually he would start a record label that he called The Hideouts. And this was not, these teen clubs were not the only ones that Seeger played. Uh, at one, one point Seeger says, there were probably 30 or 40 of these around the state, and we played them all. No one ever got paid more than a couple hundred bucks unless they were headliners. It was 500 bucks top. So he played those all over the state of Michigan while starting to record for Hideout Records, which was in the recording studio was in the basement of a bowling alley. And Punch Andrews said, we had to keep people off the 12th lane because that went right over the center of the studio and just destroyed the bass. It would vibrate and ruin the session. So they were doing things pretty fly by night, but they were making it work. And by uh, the time that Seeger was 23, Bob Seeger and The Last Herd in 1968 were signed to Capitol Records, only they changed their name at this point to the Bob Seeger system. And this is when, in 1969, they released the album Rambling Gamblin' Man, which reached number 17 on the charts, which is pretty damn good, especially being that it doesn't happen for him for uh, another almost decade until Night Moves in 1977. He was, during this time, friends with another local musician, a guy named Glenn Fry, who was in a band called The Mushrooms. He would stay in The Mushrooms for a while until he quit that band and went to California and started another band they called The Eagles. Uh, Glenn Fry was his longtime friend, and it was kind of a mentor-mentee relationship, although it kind of shifted over time. At one point, Bob said, Glenn and I used to drop acid together in the 60s and do stuff like go see Planet of the Apes, totally ripped. He sort of idolized me because he was just a kid, maybe 18, and I was all of 23 with a string of local hits. Within time, this, the roles would be reversed, uh, and Glenn would act as sort of a mentor to Bob when it came to songwriting because Bob was really focused on playing live and record and uh, Bob was really focused on playing live and playing out and touring and trying to build a following but he was lacking discipline when it came to songwriting so he would just kind of re redo a lot of the same stuff at this point later on in the, 
in their careers, Bob Seger says that Glenn Frey became, the, said the son became the father in a way. Although Bob helped Glenn Frey as well. I mean, uh, it, wasn't, it wasn't just Frey helping Seger because it was Bob Seger that actually wrote the chorus and the bass line for the song Heartache Tonight. So there was a bit of a collaboration that was always kind of going on there between those two guys. So Bob was playing a lot throughout the late 60s and early 70s. I mean, uh, for the 10 years up until 1977's Night Moves, he claimed that he, to have played at least 200 shows a year. He says in 1972, he looked at his inco income tax form and it said that he made $8,200 after playing 200 shows. And he says he probably spent about seven grand on equipment. It was during this period of grueling touring that Bob Seger wrote what became one of his big, long-lasting classics, Turn the Page, from 1973's album Back in 72 on Reprise now, Reprise Records. You've probably heard this song, you've probably heard his version, or perhaps you've been to a karaoke anywhere in the Midwest and heard, you know, the, the guy come up, because there's like sometimes two or three or four guys in one night that will come up and take his turn doing this song. Um, he, he, the song definitely reflects his attitude and the fact that he was getting really, really tired of playing so much. He says at one point about touring, he said, I can't tell you how disillusioned I got and how tired I got of not making it, but I never gave up. After everybody had gone and the venues were empty, I remember some nights looking back at the stages when I was so disillusioned and said, you're not going to chase me off that stage and I'll be back next time. And sure enough, he was. And it was playing live that would really change his trajectory. Because, I mean, he was just cranking out album after album after album. Uh, Noah, Mongrel, Beautiful Loser, which was in part inspired by a Leonard Cohen lyric because he was pretty influenced by Leonard Cohen generally. But 1976, there was like this new trend of releasing live albums. Kiss released their live album. Uh, Peter Frampton released his live album to great acclaim that year. And... Bob Seger released Live Bullet in 1976. He said, I was really opposed to doing a live album, but frankly, I just couldn't finish the new record. We just couldn't wait any longer or we'd lose all the momentum from Beautiful Loser. So against his better judgment, he, uh, he does Live Bullet in 76. And he's been, again, he's playing like 200 shows a year and he'd saved Kobo Hall. This was actually the first album that he recorded with the Silver Bullet Band. And... This album, Live Bullet, ends up getting on the charts for three years. It sells four million copies, and it sets the stage for Night Moves, which comes out the following year, actually like six months later. And that also charts and starts to sell a bunch of top copies. So at one point, both Live Bullet and Night Moves are, are charting, uh, and it's doing pretty, pretty well. Part of the reason Night Moves is doing so well is not just the album itself. It's the song, Night Moves, which is like this very nostalgic uh uh, you know, cars and teenage kind of like scenes from Italian restaurant kind of song that he said was directly inspired by not just his own life and, and childhood, but by American Graffiti, the, the George Lucas album, uh, excuse me, the George Lucas movie. And he was told by friends pretty much from the get-go from recording that song that this was going to be one of those songs that you're going to be stuck with. I hope you like it uh, because this is, this is a great song that you'll be playing for the rest of your life. This is a career-defining song, and, and, they're, and they're not wrong. The following year, because uh, at this point still Bob Seger is putting out an album a year practically, just like cranking them out. So he follows up Night Moves with Stranger in Town, which has a lot of great songs on it. It's considered part of his... Uh, classic kind of uh, 
you know classic era when he, he was really firing all on all cylinders and it was on this album that you get the the song I'm not a number which was for me the song that brought me back to Bob Seger I used to have to drive back and forth regularly from Philadelphia to, to, to Huntington West Virginia and on that trip sometimes I would hit a spot where um, where I couldn't use a you know I couldn't stream or use Spotify or anything like that so I'd actually have to rely to on local radio which is something I you know haven't done since the 1990s and uh, I remember hearing the song I'm not a number and just I don't think I'd ever heard it before but I was pounding the roof of my car like I was the big Lebowski and well I guess like Jeffrey Lebowski the dude anyways so this song is I mean the the, the the subject matter is pretty evident in the in the in the title and not a number but it's kind of I think it's uh, what's the word I'm looking for I think it is representative of a lot of his other stuff and that it's about the little guy with the big dreams who's fighting against the currents of culture and commerce and and capitalism and and, and all this other kind of working class stuff so it's it really resonated with me and it brought me back into the fold of, of appreciating his music and I haven't stopped since so he continued to play live um, you know throughout and he always had this attitude. He said, "If if you care about your fans and you show up, you're going to be beloved. Uh, you know, serve your audience. They can tell when you care about them." So he had a really strong work ethic when it came to touring, and this continued into the '80s. But by the '80s, he started having the clout to give other people uh, a chance. So he he becomes really consistent in choosing new bands and performers to open for him on a tour, giving chances to people like Steve Earle, Eric Church, and, and others. And he's known also to like watch the opening acts, and not just even watch the opening acts, but to watch the sound checks, which is pretty great. I mean, he, used to, he talked about performing for Kiss or opening for Kiss, and how he was amazed that they even let him have a sound check back in the day, because that was something that opening acts were often denied. So he obviously really valued uh, all the years that he put in on the road and the, the, the years that other people are putting on the, in on the road. And he wanted to give them their fair shake. The 80s, in some ways, is really kind to him and in other ways really, really is not. Um, so for instance, 1983, the song Old Time Rock and Roll is on the charts for the second time because it's used in the film Risky Business where Tom Cruise puts on sunglasses and underwear and slides across the floor and and, and sings it. And this moment, this scene, uh, and the song together become so iconic in American culture as to become something of a humdrum character, something so repeated and uh, just like mocked, first and embraced and uh, just kind of uh, overdone to the point that the song becomes, uh, I, I can't even listen to that song hardly anymore. I love Bob Seger. I love almost all of his songs. That one, I'm happy to skip. It's the brown-eyed girl of his career, as far as I'm concerned. And, uh, but it, it, it kind of gives, again, a lot of people in my generation a not-so-great introduction to his work. Similar to that is 1987's Shakedown, which was for the Beverly Hills Cop 2 soundtrack. Now, he didn't even write the music for this. This was by a guy named Harold Faltermeyer and another guy named Keith, 
Keith Folsey or Forsey. The lyrics were by Bob, but uh, he, he recorded it after Glenn Fry, who had recorded the the abysmal Heat Is On for the the first Beverly Hills Cop movie. They they, they went to Glenn Fry, he turned it down, suggested Bob, and, and Bob did Shakedown. This song is not a good song. I don't, I'm sorry to the fans of this song, but it's just not. It is no, uh, you know, it's 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 no. Catman do I'll give you that so but of course this becomes his first and only number one single on the billboard charts which again there's like this kind of constant irony in his work in that sometimes I think the things that are appreciated best by him or most by him are, are not his best works for instance the song like a rock now that album had come out several years before this but 1991 Chevy started using the song like a rock uh, for their ad campaign and it was supposed to be for three to six months, but they were so happy with it that they ended up using it for 13 years. So again, for a lot of my generation, just this kind of not so great song, it's not, that's not his worst song, but, but the context of it being used to sell you something repeatedly, uh, something that is contrived and overly Americanized and masculine, it just didn't, it didn't bode well for, for, for fans of his, or people of his, it didn't bode well for people that weren't fans of his that could have become fans of his, like myself. We were missing out on, you know, the two plus twos equal question marks. We were missing out on the, uh, I was going to say blame it on the moon, but that's a cover. Uh, we, they were, we were missing out on the even nows of his, of his career. In his personal life, Bob got married a couple times. The first two times he was married for a, a year, both times. I'm guessing that the, the touring didn't really help. But in June of 1993, he married his third wife and his last wife, a woman named Juanita Doricott. He had two kids from her. They're still married. And that's kind of been like his lifelong love, other than music, of course. And... It took a while for him to get recognized in the 70s. Uh, and I think it took a while to, for him to get recognized in 2000, you know, in the 2000s. In 2004, he's inducted as a performer into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame by his friend Kid Rock, um, which is great. I mean, other than I mean, it's great that he got in the Hall of Fame, I'm, you know, Kid Rock, okay. But for most of Bob Seger's career, he had spent so much time just grinding it out, grinding it out. You know, people would call him the hardest working man in showbiz, you know, if they weren't talking about James Brown, they were talking about Bob Seger as far as being hardworking because he really, really worked for it and, and, and played. But, uh, you know, as his as he got more and more famous, he, he, he toured a little bit less and the album started coming out a little bit a little bit further and further apart. And as his albums, you know, as, and as, as, as time moved on and we got more into the digital age and uh, it got, even before that, it got really hard to get his old albums. As early as the mid-1970s, Punch Andrews acknowledged that releasing the back catalog of, of Bob's early albums on his own record label, Palladium, was a bad idea because it meant that they didn't get produced and put out there as much. And the, and the fact that he was... Uh, superstar in the Midwest didn't really do much to, to help him when it came to the fact that he hardly toured the East and West Coast. He always maintained a presence in the Midwest where it was 
where he'd be mobbed and beloved, but uh, he was maybe a little less sure about playing New York or L.A. I think that Bob maybe had some of that Midwestern kind of insecurity going on for all of his career, despite the fact that he's a living legend. So, but he kept touring. He kept on putting out albums. Again, they, they, you know, they they were not available to stream. They were they've not been available uh, to 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 get on record. Even I mean, they they hadn't been produced on CD. You were not going to hear a lot of his earlier stuff at all, and that's still kind of the case. You're going to have a hard time finding Noah or Mongrel uh, in 2017. His uh, his his. Some of his mid-career albums were finally made available for streaming. Punch Andrews had always thought that this would not be profitable and had dragged his heels on it for a long time, but eventually they, everything from like Beautiful Loser in 1975 to 1991's The Fire Inside was put on Spotify and uh, Apple and all these other ones. And, and also Rambling Gambling Man was put on there as well. So right now, as of yesterday, um, Bob Seger is wrapping up his final tour. Yesterday was his last show at the DTE Music Theater in Michigan. If you're from Michigan, you probably call it Pine Knob because that's what it was called for decades. An outdoor venue that he just played, I believe, six shows at. I wasn't able to go to any of them uh, here in in uh, Pennsylvania. Uh, Unfortunately, the furthest east that he is getting at all, I mean, other than Florida, is Pittsburgh, which is five hours for me, and well, it's also happening in mid-October, which is a time that I just have a ton of other stuff going on, so I'm not able to go and see him on his final tour, which which breaks my heart, so I guess this podcast is kind of a way of, of, of giving him his due, from me at least. Um, he, he probably decided to do his final, t- that this would be his final tour after he had to cancel a tour last year. He had to stop in the middle of it for emergency spinal surgery. He had a ruptured disc. Um, but he, I think it's been on his mind for a while that he was going to retire. Because as early as 2011, he said, hey, you can't cheat father time forever. So his final show uh, is, I'm not sure when his exact final show is. I want to say it's, uh, it's going to be sometime in October. Uh, he's taking a little bit of a break, I guess, between the playing the Michigan dates and playing the rest of the dates. He's spreading things out because he's an older fella and he's, you know, he's, doesn't have to play 200, 267 shows a year anymore. But he's doing well. I mean, the money is coming in. According to touring data, as of June, he was number 10 on their list of top earning performers for 2019, right behind Michael Buble with uh, $39 million coming in from this tour. So I hope that it sets him up for the rest of his life and, and his people uh, you know all of the many performers and and uh, you know logistic type people that make his work happen. I hope that everybody who wants to see him gets a chance, even if I didn't. For what it's worth, I did get to see a band last night called Jawbox, who was on a reunion tour, who I've been wanting to see since 1994 and had never been able to until now. So I I, I do get some luck somewhere, but. Uh, yeah, so if you get a chance, go see Bob Seger. You're not going to get it again. And that's my very brief history and very broad history of Bob Seger. Thanks for coming with me on this fairly brief episode of A Very Broad History of Werewolves and Other Things. 
I was unsure about doing an episode about Bob because I kind of felt like, eh, how much is really there? And then I thought, eh, screw it. <laughs> I find it interesting, and, and worst case scenario, you turn it off. Um, if you do like Bob Seger, or uh, if you're not really familiar with Bob Seger, I'm going to strongly suggest you put on the album The Distance. Every song on this album is a real piece of work, especially the opening song, even now. It's such a beautiful song. Please check it out. As for a reference this time or a suggestion, uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have to suggest another podcast. Uh, I want to suggest the podcast Hour of History, which is hosted by my friend Stephen Bauman, from whom I basically stole this segment about suggesting uh, other people's works. Check him out. He is uh, available everywhere that you can find my pat podcast. You can find Hour of History podcast. And if you want uh, more from me, you can also find a couple episodes at least. I've been on there twice. You can find two, maybe three episodes of his that I guest host or, you know, was uh, interviewed on. I talked about Stan Lee and the Marvel comics in one of them. I kind of forget about what I talked about the other time. And uh, so you can check those out or check out any of the other very interesting podcasts that he has all about, like my podcast, it just covers a vast variety of historical subjects. So I strongly suggest checking that out. All right, everybody, thank you so much for coming with me today. I wish you the very best. Take care.